Welcome to Optimal Neurospine Podcast, a podcast about optimizing our brain and spine in health and disease. Each episode, leading neuroscientists, neurosurgeons, educators, patients, spine care, and quality improvement experts discuss their research, experience, emerging science, surgical advances, and insights about how to optimize neurological and spine care. Now, here's your host, Dr. Max Boyacci. Welcome to the Optimal Neurospine Podcast. This is Dr. Max Boachi. Today, I have an excellent guest who's going to talk to us about brain tumors. The interview today is with Dr. Michael Lim. Dr. Lim is the professor and chair of the Department of Neurosurgery and a board-certified neurosurgeon specializing in brain tumors. He's currently chair of neurosurgery at Stanford University. Prior to becoming chair of neurosurgery at Stanford, he was a professor of neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins, where he built one of the largest brain tumor practices. Dr. Lem's research involves development of immunotherapies for brain tumors and focuses on understanding mechanisms of immune evasion by cancer cells. He has been a principal investigator of several large multicenter immunotherapy clinical trials for brain tumors. A world leader in immunotherapy for brain tumors, Dr. Lim has published over 200 manuscripts on treatment of brain tumors and trigeminal neuralgia. He is a member of the American Society for Clinical Oncology, Congress of Neurological Surgeons, American Association of Neurological Surgeons, and Society for Neuro-Oncology. He has served as the program co-chair of the Society for neuro-oncology, and the CNS section of the American Society for Clinical Oncology. He also served on many executive committees, including the executive committee of the Joint Tumor Section of the American Association of Neurological Surgeons and Congress of Neurological Surgeons. Dr. Lim, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Tell me a little bit about yourself your educational background, and then your current clinical practice. Sure. So as you mentioned, I am the chair of neurosurgery here at Stanford. I have a focus on brain tumors and also both clinically and in research. And I have uh, also an interest in trigeminal neuralgia, both clinical and research. How did you decide to focus your career on the treatment of brain tumors? I've always had an interest in taking care of cancer patients, even when I was young. First of all, to take care of patients with cancer is just a tremendous privilege. Patients are allowing us to be a part of their lives when they're at the most vulnerable moment of life. In terms of me being interested from a research standpoint, I had an interest in cancer and learning about cancer, cancer biology, and cancer therapies at a very early age. Even when I was an undergrad, my first summer, I actually went into a laboratory to learn about cancer pathways. And I've always maintained an interest in cancer, regardless of me being an undergrad or in medical school and through residency. So in your clinical practice, what part of the schedule is devoted to doing brain tumor surgery and what percentage of your time is doing research? It's hard to say exact percentages. 
the way I see it is the majority of my time and effort and thoughts throughout the day are, are spent on trying to either think about taking care of patients with cancer or thinking about research on cancer. Throughout my career, I've been lucky to spend a, a good deal or a good portion of my academic life either taking care of patients with cancer or spending a lot of time in the laboratory with, with cancer. So what made you decide to spend so much time in a laboratory? Why did you become a clinician scientist? Being a clinician scientist means that you can bridge being in the laboratory and being in the clinics. And I think in order to be able to understand cancer and come up with the next therapies, you have to have a connection to both realms, at least for me, as because I'm very interested in translational research. To me, from an intellectual standpoint, and for coming up with the next generation of therapies, I think it's important to understand the basic biology of cancers. On the other hand, sometimes what you do in the laboratory, you know, in a petri dish and in animals doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on in patients in real, in real time. And so being on the clinical side and taking care of lots of patients who've had cancer, you have observations, you know, you understand things about swelling, edema, you understand how tumors might recur and understand and appreciate the heterogeneity of the disease. And, and those are all things that can bring, bring those questions back to the bench. You know, as you understand and, and try to tackle those problems, you can then come up with a therapy that's rational and then and go back into the clinical realm and do clinical trials. So in your lab, is there one particular type of brain tumor research that you do, or do you work on all kinds of different tumors? In my lab, I've been particularly interested in the in immunotherapy. You know, I know it's really popular now, but when I first started, immunotherapy wasn't the most popular <laughs> um, topic for cancer. But the interplay between cancer and the immune system was my initial interest. And as a result, you started to understand these mechanisms of ways the cancers dampened or basically abrogated any anti-tumor immune responses. And as you understand some of these key pathways, then you can try to leverage them. And as a result, we've been able to leverage some of these pathways to, to test them out in humans to see if we can change the course of disease. So are you working on like glioblastoma or meningiomas or which cancers are you working on? I have the fortune of being able to work on multiple cancer types. As you mentioned, glioblastoma is the predominant focus in my laboratory, but we've also worked on looking at conditions such as meningiomas. We've also looked at other conditions such as chordomas and brain metastases. There are other diseases, obviously, such as subependymomas, which is another one. Over the years, I've had the, the ability and we've been able to build the bandwidth to look at multiple cancer types. Mm -hmm. What is immunotherapy? I know you mentioned it briefly. Can you explain to the audience, some of whom may not have a background in neuro-oncology, what exactly is immunotherapy? Well, the thought of immunotherapy is to basically take your immune system and have it fight off your cancer cells at its most basic level. And if you look just physiologically, our immune system has and does actively 
remove cells that may have gone awry in our body, you know, precancerous lesions. Need, um, for example, if you look at patients who develop severe immunosuppression like HIV, they develop things like Kaposi sarcoma and these lymphomas or leukemias. And so the immune system does, as part of its normal function, kill off maybe small cancers or precancerous cells. But when the cancers become more malignant and they develop their malignant potentials, they have figured out ways to turn off the immune system so that they can grow. And immunotherapy is looking for ways to reverse that immunosuppression and turn the right components of the immune system on to fight and kill cancer. This way, it allows you not just a, a definitive kill or initially, but it hopefully allows for surveillance so that you can really get a, a durable response. Mm-hmm. So what are some specific examples of immunotherapy in terms of the strategies? One classic example is the checkpoint molecules that are out today. You may have heard of these drugs, anti-PD-1, anti-CTLA-4. You know, the first definitive study, randomized study, was done in 2010 by Dr. Hody. It was published in the New England Journal. And they actually showed that they were able to get a tail of patients, about 20% that were living and it's almost essentially cured. And from that point on, there's been just an unprecedented number of FDA approvals for anti-CTLA-4 and anti-PD-1 for many different cancers. What those drugs do is that there's a pathway called PD-1. And when PD-1 is expressed or activated on presumably lymphocytes, it essentially shuts them down. And so if you can block the activation of that receptor, you can actually keep these T-cells engaged in killing cancer. And so melanoma, lung cancer, kidney cancer, head and neck cancer, there are many different cancers that are showing responses to this therapy. So PD-1 is a bad guy. It's expressed by the tumor and you have to block it in order to make the T-cells basically do a better job. Is that yeah, I mean, what it is, is PD-1 is actually expressed on T-cells, mm-hmm. and the ligand for PD-1 is called PD-L1, and PD-L1 mm-hmm. is thought to be expressed mainly on cancer cells, and so when PD-L1 is expressed, it engages PD-1 on T-cells and essentially shuts them off. This is a normal thing that we have in our bodies to prevent things like autoimmune reactions, mm-hmm. but cancers have usurped this mechanism to effectively hide from the immune system. I see. So other than the PD-1 and is it CTL-4? CTLA-4, yes. Yeah. What other molecules are are being looked at? Well, there's one that's quite exciting called anti-LAG-3. At ASCO this year, Dr. Lipson had a, a presentation of a randomized study for patients with metastatic melanoma who were treated with anti lag 3 and anti-PD-1 in combination. And the comparator arm was anti-PD-1. And the progression-free survival for patients with melanoma was doubled with anti-LAG-3. So I do think that that's another molecule coming down the pike. There are other exciting opportunities that are out there, things such as CAR T-cells. These are genetically engineered T-cells that can recognize specific antigens. One of the most famous ones are for some of these leukemias. They, these CAR T-cells have been curing some kids with leukemia. So a lot of that work has been done initially at UPenn, for example. 
And so now if you have a specific antigen in mind, you can develop a CAR T-cell that recognizes it. That field has really exploded. And then there are also vaccines, personalized vaccines. For example, when the tumor is removed, they're able to sequence the tumor. They have through computer software, they're able to predict which of these mutations might be immunogenic. And then they're synthesizing those peptides and then essentially injecting them back into patients, thinking it'll be an immune adjuvant. So there are a lot of, that's just only the tip of the iceberg, but there are a lot of exciting things that are out there. What are some of the recent clinical trials of immunotherapy and which ones have been the most successful to date for glioblastoma? So in terms of glioblastoma, unfortunately, we are not, our story is not as successful as melanoma. Unfortunately, the anti-PD-1 trial in the recurrent and newly diagnosed setting came out negative. So that's not the only tumor. For example, pancreatic cancer also came out negative. So they're calling these tumors that aren't responding to PD-1 cold tumors. And so people right now are looking very actively at different ways. There's interesting data with viruses and using checkpoint inhibitors. For example, you've seen the polio vaccine that they go the folks at Duke were, are leading. There's also retroviruses. There's other checkpoint molecules. We ran a trial for LAG3 and PD-1, for example. There are a lot more checkpoint molecules that are being used. There's things such as TIGIT, and, and those are all underway in the world. But mm-hmm. we haven't really seen a signal. We've seen case reports. You know, We've seen some people have great responses to PD-1. Some people have some great response to CAR T-cells. But Nothing that has led us to some meaningful. When you say checkpoint, can you explain to the the audience what is a checkpoint molecule? Oh, my apologies. So anti-PD-1 and anti-CTLA-4 are checkpoint molecules. That's the class of those immunotherapies. And they call them checkpoint molecules because anytime the immune system is in our body and it's doing surveillance, if it encounters an antigen, the T-cell isn't automatically activated. It requires a second signal to either turn the T-cell on or turn the T-cell off, right? And that's important because you need to prevent things such as autoimmune disorders. And that second signal is part of the checkpoints, they call them. So you either turn them on or off. And that's why, for example, PD-1, CTLA-4, LAG-3, these are all in that class of drugs. I see. Thank you for explaining that to me. What are the current management strategies for glioblastoma? What is the standard of care? Well, the standard of care, I think, in a newly diagnosed setting is standard temidar and radiation or temozolomide and radiation. Patients then get what they call adjuvant radiation. They get temozolomide for five days a month for either six months or a year, but that's being actively looked at. So you get radiation and temozolomide. The other two approved therapies are the gliadel wafers, and that is basically a polymer that contains BCNU, which is a chemotherapy, and you lay that into the cavity after you remove the GBM, and that has gone through phase three clinical trials and has shown improved survival, and that's an approved therapy. And then the other therapy that's out right now is the, they call it electromagnetic fields, call it the Optune device, and basically... It looks like a helmet where they put these little electrodes on and for 18 hours a day, your head is exposed to these electromagnetic fields. 
presumably works by disrupting cells undergoing mitosis. What has been your most important contribution or paper that you've worked on, published? I don't know if I would feel comfortable saying I made this contribution. (laughs) I think the immunotherapy field is very close, and I think we've all worked in a collaborative fashion. And maybe I'd summarize it as a couple things. First is that we as a field have uncovered that the mechanisms of immunosuppression in glioblastoma are very different than, for example, melanoma or lung cancer. From the researchers today, they have figured out that there are the T cells and there are what's called myeloid cells. And myeloid cells are things such as macrophages, microglia, dendritic cells, neutrophils. And these cells all seem to play a very central role in mediating the immunosuppression. That's very different. So there's probably a population of cells that are mediating this immunosuppression that we really need to target and overcome. The other piece to the glioplastoma immunosuppression is that when you have a tumor in the brain, the immunosuppression is actually global, not local. It turns out your whole body actually has drops in T-cell counts and presumably the ability to kill foreign invaders. So that's why some people have to go on Bactrim or or, or these pneumonia prophylaxis and it explains, we think is an explanation. Is there, what would you say is the most important paper has been published last year or two? Well, I think in terms of some important publications or announcements that have come out, I think that the PD-1 story is important. The large randomized clinical trials, both in the recurrent and newly diagnosed settings, whether through press release or through publications, have shown that PD-1 is probably not going to be the thing that helps patients with glioblastoma. It's important because we're in this wave of uh, excitement with anti-PD-1 or these checkpoint molecules. I think uh, other important uh, findings is that uh, there are a series of papers that have come out that have shown that the perhaps the macrophages and microglia and they call MDSCs, myeloid-derived suppressor cells, are probably major players in the immunosuppression. And so I think we as a field have really shifted our attention to trying to overcome those, those cells in hopes of generating an effective anti-tumor response. Can you comment, discuss the safety aspects of uh, brain tumor surgery? How, what sort of like recent developments have made brain tumor surgery safer? You know, I think that in general, neurosurgery is a field that embraces technology. You know, even from the start, our image guidance systems are great tools for us. We now can really tailor the craniotomies. This isn't something new this year. It's been around for probably decades now, but it's an important tool that we use in neurosurgery. The second tool that I think has been important is things such as functional MRIs. We're able to get scans on patients and understand where the eloquent parts of the brain are and understand the fibers that connect, you know, for example, the SLF or the arcuate fasciculus or, you know, some of these other bundles to help guide us in our surgery so that we don't, for example, affect someone's speech or vision fibers. That, I think, is very important. I think the other technologies that I don't want to say are new, but we've been tried and true and critical is things such as awake craniotomies and awake mapping. And then other things that have been uh, added to our armamentarium intraoperative MRIs um, have allowed us to, for example, with low-grade gliomas, getting a good surgical resection is so important. 
now having uh, intraoperative MRI gives the patients a higher chance of getting gross total resection, so it positively impacts outcome in, in patients. You know, something new that's been approved in the U.S. by the FDA is they call it fluorescence, and uh, basically uh, patients can take uh, this medicine before surgery, like six hours before surgery, and uh, when you have the microscope in the brain, you can turn on a certain filter and any tumor that contains any tumor cell will take up this, I call it almost a dye, and will light up as, you know, for example, like a pinkish purple. So as you're removing, you'll be able to see any margins of tumor and, and improve the resection. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. In many areas of medicine, there are significant racial disparities. Are there disparities in access to brain tumor care and disparities in the outcomes of brain tumor treatments? I know this is a big topic, but maybe a few comments on your observations. Yeah, I think, you know, unfortunately, brain tumors are like many other things. I mean, it's we are facing the same issues in brain tumors uh, as medicine throughout. I mean, it's so front and center. And I think, I'm, you know, one of the silver linings to COVID is that it brought this attention to the inequities in healthcare. And, and so we've been very supportive of overcoming these inequities in healthcare. I mean, you know, for glioblastomas, for example, it's a very difficult disease to overcome. I mean, the in some situations, we don't have a cure. And, you know, if you look, for example, for clinical trials, there's a definitely a disparity. And clinical trials is what oftentimes, you know, patients go on to when their tumors recur. And that's a very classic example. And I think in, in neuro-oncology, I think also sometimes the technologies that we highlighted, they have to be done in uh, specialized centers. And sometimes you know, people don't have the, the resources or can travel the distance to go to some of these tertiary care centers to get the surgeries that they need. And so I think it's so important that we find ways to reach out and, and help. I think things like telemedicine um, hopefully will help, you know, be able to make us more accessible. Of course, the technology also is another barrier in getting the inequity. And I know that we have initiatives here to try to make the technology better for uh, for patients. And so I think people are recognizing there are many barriers, you know, subtle things from technology, just even getting online to uh, getting access to, you know, these tertiary care centers. And I think it's been a very active effort on, you know, at our institution and, and across neuro-oncology. Uh, fantastic. One last question for you. And I know you have to run, but one last question. You have been a successful clinician scientist. You are NIH-funded. You got multiple grants. Any advice you have to upcoming young neurosurgeons about pursuing a clinician scientist career and two to three tips and pearls for, for success? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to start with the desire. I mean, you're caught between both worlds, and I see it as a, a way that we can try to help our patients. You know, as a clinician scientist, you know, you have the side of you that needs to be able to take care of patients and build a practice. You know, we owe it to our patients to be good surgeons, right? You can't just be dabbling in neurosurgery. You have to immerse yourself and, and do a great job in residency and get the training that you need And when you come out. On the other hand, in the scientific world, you know, you also have to set the foundations uh, in your lab. And if you don't set that foundation, you know, it's also a problem. So when you come out, you're kind of at this point where you're trying to build a practice and trying to build a lab. And oftentimes, you know, I've seen it happen, like people, 
they get consults, they get patients who come into the ER and they were saying, I'm just going to do my research tomorrow and then something else happens. And so I always tell people the first two or three years when you come out of practice and if you want to be a clinician, scientists are critical. And setting up your laboratory is like setting up the garden. If you, if you don't set it up right in the beginning, your garden won't produce. And so you need to make that dedication to setting up the lab. Your practice will grow and it's important to do that, but it's okay to make sure that, you know, as your practice starts to pick up, you don't have to have it start right away. You really need to have your lab start and you need to have someone support you. And then as your career progresses, you know, we talk about percentages. And I remember early on, I was so obsessed about saying like Monday and Tuesday, I'm going to be in the lab and Thursday, Friday, you know, I was going to be in clinic. And it just, you know, life doesn't happen that way. And nobody chooses to get sick on a Monday because it's convenient for them. People will get sick on whatever day. So I tried to make it, you know, when I was early on in my career, I, I would say if I could get at least two weeks of the month in the lab, then it works. And then you also, you can't do this alone. This is a team sport. And so you have to be in a program that values the clinician scientists. You also have to be in a program that the chair values the clinician scientists to ensure that you get protected time. And not just the time, but the resources that you need to be able to do the, the lab. And finally, I think, you know, you have to be in a situation where you have good collaborators I mean, I think the days of having your own lab and being in a silo are we're not doing right by our patients. I think if you stay in a silo, we need to be team, a team sport, and we need to, you know, work with the PhDs because the PhDs offer perspectives that we as clinician scientists don't have. And when you do that, momentum builds and, and you'll be able to continue your career. But you know, as I said in the beginning, it's how you start out, because if you don't start right, it's it's only going to be harder and harder to set your career up. Well, thank you very much for that fantastic advice. Thank you, uh, Dr. Lim, for taking the time to give us just a brief introduction to the world of exciting world of immunotherapy for GBMs. Thank you for your insights. Oh, thank you, Dr. Boachi. It's been an honor to be here and, and talk with you today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Optimal Neurospine Podcast with Dr. Max Boachi. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you share it with others. Leave us positive reviews on social media or leave a rating and review on iTunes. Check out our website, maxwellboachi.com slash podcasts for show transcripts and other information. Join us next time for another edition of Optimal Neurospine Show. Spine Show.